I'm Jim Pullen. And I'm Joel Parker. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, November 19th, 2013. On today's show, do you have to pull out all of your hair to learn physics? Jim, I still have my hair, and so do most of my students. And what is the pollution impact from local oil and gas development? Well, it contributes about half to our ozone problem here in the Front Range. But first, a set of spacey news and progress in modeling fires. CU Boulder has yet another foothold in space. Yesterday, November 17th, at 11.28 a.m. Mountain Time, the MAVEN spacecraft launched on NASA's next mission to Mars. The countdown and launch were completely nominal, which is NASA speak, meaning everything went according to plan. The Atlas V spacecraft carrying MAVEN was launched from Cape Canaveral. And to give you an idea of how powerful and fast these unmanned launches are, in less than 200 seconds after launch, the rocket was already 35 miles high, traveling over 6,000 miles per hour, and weighed only one quarter of its original launch weight. Most of the mass of the rocket is fuel. Less than 1% of the total launch weight is for the MAVEN spacecraft, and less than 3% of that is for the scientific instruments. It takes burning a lot of fuel very quickly to produce enough power to get the comparatively small spacecraft to Mars. MAVEN's principal investigator is Dr. Bruce Joukowsky of the Laboratory of Atmospheric and Space Physics at the University of Colorado at Boulder, who with his team has been developing MAVEN for the past decade. What is the mission's primary goal? Well, that's described in the name MAVEN. MAVEN stands for Mars Atmosphere and Volatile Evolution. The spacecraft will study the upper atmosphere of Mars and how it has lost water, carbon dioxide, and other gases over time. Using a highly elliptical orbit and by taking several deep dips into the upper atmosphere, MAVEN will be able to directly sample and measure properties of the Martian atmosphere. Hot on the warp nacelles of yesterday's MAVEN launch, CU is at NASA's Wallops Island Flight Facility in Virginia to help out with another launch. Meet Tim. The Total Irradiance Monitor is an instrument made on short order that will fly on a larger ship called the Total Solar Irradiance Calibration Transfer Experiment, or TCTE. The goal? To look at the sun. Scientists have shown that the overall output of the sun changes only about a tenth of a percent over the duration of a solar cycle, which lasts 11 years. But for climate studies, changes over longer durations need to be measured. Tim will help scientists avoid a gap in a 35-year record of solar measurements, which is key to understanding both these long-term and short-term changes in the sun's radiation that help determine natural causes of climate change. The Earth has warmed about one and a half degrees Fahrenheit over the last century, roughly 10 to 15 percent of that, or less than one-fifth of a degree, is likely due to the sun, while most of the rest is caused by us humans. Scientists at CU Boulder's Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics, or LASP, put the instrument together in just about five months for $5 million. Researchers have developed a new tool to better forecast wildfires that could mean more safety for firefighters. The new computer model combines high-resolution satellite images of fires 
with weather forecasting to provide better understanding of how a fire will behave in real time. The new tool, called the Coupled Atmosphere Wildland Fire Environment, or COFFEE, was developed by researchers at Boulder's National Center for Atmospheric Research and the University of Maryland. NCAR's researcher Dr. Janice Cohen told How on Earth that the key to COFFEE's success was new satellite data coming from a sensitive instrument aboard a satellite run by NASA and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. That instrument, called VIRS, can give researchers images of a fire showing details just 1,200 feet across. Old instruments gave them images every half mile across, a resolution too weak to follow the leading edge of the fire. With the better images, updated every 12 hours, models for fire prediction can be very accurate, Cohen said. And the satellite can spot fires when they first begin, when they are only slightly larger than a bonfire. The next step is to work with wildland firefighters who could incorporate the new technique into their own methods, Cohen said. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Jim Pullen. Our first guest is CU physicist and Carnegie Professor of the Year, Dr. Steve Pollack. Welcome to How on Earth, Steve. Thanks, Jim. Steve, um, at the beginning, I asked you if I if we had to pull out our hair, and I, I'll tell the story here. Uh, a long time ago, when I was a physics student, um, I, uh, I uh, you know, well, I had a mom like everybody, I guess, but uh, I, I, I lost my hair pretty early on, like I, when, I, when I was 20. And I can remember my mom visiting me uh, at school, and, 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 uh, and I'd say, Mom, it's your fault. It's your fault for this. And she'd look at me very seriously and say, I had absolutely nothing to do with it. Every time I come here, you're doing those physics problems and pulling all your hair out. And so I don't know if it, are your stu- do your students have this problem. <laughs> well, we still do give those homework problems. Uh, so there, there is surely some stress associated with doing um, introductory physics. But I would say one of the big um, advances in recent years is trying to make our classes um, sort of more meaningful uh, and comfortable for students. Uh, so... So hopefully there's a little bit less hair pulling going on. Well, I'm imagining uh, I'm imagining a bar maybe and some comfortable couches when you say yeah, comfortable. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, physics is of course the study of how the world works. It's about people's lives, and it's it's relevant to just about everybody who's sitting in that room. And uh, and I think we have perhaps not emphasized that in the past. Um, so it's easy it's easy to sort of teach formalism. And uh, and focus on the math and uh, forget that what we're talking about is how how things work. Do you teach both the uh, Do you teach both the calculus based uh, physics for people moving on into physics, the hard sciences, engineering, and then the general physics? I, I do. I teach it all. Um, There's a tradition in our department that people rarely teach the same course more than a couple of times in a row. Um, so we don't get into ruts. Uh, it, it it does mean um, that you have to keep prepping new classes, uh, but it also means I get to teach. Intro physics of all sorts of different flavors, as well as advanced upper division courses. Yeah, and so the people who are taking the general physics for non-majors class, why in the world would they, I mean, why should they be taking a, a physics? I mean, a traditionally difficult subject, they may make a bad grade. Why, why, why? Uh, yeah, so um, as I was saying, um, 
I teach an introductory course called The Physics of Sound and Music. So you can imagine why people might take that. It sounds like a, a great, easy course. Um, and uh, y yeah, I think what we're trying to do is to challenge people to think about the world in a systematic way and to make decisions about what's true and what's not true based on evidence and, and reason. So, you know, there's a lot of meta messages in this class uh, that go beyond learning Newton's laws or, um, or, or calculating. Um, it's more about interpreting physical phenomena and predicting and um, being able to make rational arguments based on evidence, which, boy, I would really like for lots of people to be able to do. Yeah, right. I mean, there are different ways of looking at the world, and I kind of classify them as religion, common sense, science, and, and systematic empiricism, which uses the analogy. That's what medicine is, is most medicine, systematic empiricism. But physics is kind of the queen of all sciences, uh, the, the space-like sciences versus the time-like sciences. Why, why would we call physics? That's some, that was a distinction Ernst Mirror made, that physics is a, a time-like science, and that it deals really time isn't part of the equation in most of physics. You can run things backwards and forwards and so forth. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, thoughts about uh, the queen of sciences, physics? Uh, it, it is... It is true that it's an it's an old science. It's very well established, and much of what we teach at the introductory level is um, stuff that has been known and understood for an awfully long time. So, so maybe that also you know the the, the word queen suggests some slightly old fashioned uh, um, <laughs> analogy there. Um, uh, it is also. I think that was from some Nobel Prize winner in 2012. Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> you know, physicists tend to think very highly of themselves, and uh, and so royalty might, uh, n you know, be be a metaphor that. Yeah. Well, the room is filled generate. with physicists, and I'm just sensing this incredible glow <laughs> and chemists. And I I just had a question. You know, having taken physics as an undergrad and grad. Uh, how is physics being taught, or how are you teaching it differently today? compared to perhaps how I was taught with pretty much the formal lecture, no interaction, things like that. So there's been lots of research um, over the last several decades. Uh, there's a whole field now within physics called physics education research, and I'm part of that community and have benefited enormously from the work that people are doing. So we... Um, we try to take as much opportunity as we can in these big lectures to make the, 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 the big lecture into something small and intimate. So, so I will pose a question and um, let people talk with their neighbors. Uh, the class erupts. There'll be anything from a minute to five minutes of discussion and argumentation. And, of course, I get to wander around and listen. So I'm, I'm giving feedback and hearing what students are thinking, uh, which is hugely important when you're teaching. Uh, if you're just standing up there lecturing... It's, there's some kids in the front row who are nodding and following, and, and you can easily fool yourself into thinking that everybody in the room is in that same boat. We use clickers. Uh, it's a little piece of technology, very simple. I used to use colored cards. It doesn't have to be high-tech. Um, but it allows the students to, uh, um, to vote so that I can get a quick sense, even in a class with 200 people. Um, I, I can see how we're doing and what some of the common um, ideas are in the room and address them on the fly. So that gives you instant feedback so you can gather people got what I said or they, it went completely over their it, heads. It can go in both directions. So there are times when I'm teaching something difficult and I ask a subtle question and, you know, 90% of the class gets it and I think, wow, that, that was a surprise. And then the flip happens. I give this beautiful, clear lecture, you know, and I think, okay, that's everybody's got to have that. And I ask the most fundamental elementary question that I can think of just to sort of 
give everybody some confidence and it's 30% correct and all of a sudden the room you know we have we have to deal with it we we have to do something different well you know I Feynman for example and surely you're joking he uh, commented on on whether physics can be taught and he uh, ag- agreed with uh, Edward Gibbon you know from the decline and fall of the Roman Empire that that uh, physics really can't be taught except to people who uh, don't need to be taught anyway about physics what do you what do you think do you think physics is something that's teachable. Uh, absolutely. So I, I have I use Feynman's quote um, because if you look at his wording, he says, I don't think physics can be taught in that way. And um, what he was referring to was uh, somebody trying to transmit their wisdom by words to somebody else. And I think that is perhaps a difficult, maybe even impossible task. People have to create their own understanding. So we have to think about ways to build some environments where students have the opportunity to make sense and uh, for themselves. Right. And, and what is the role of technology? You mentioned clickers. I myself don't use clickers. I wish I did, and I may start doing that. But I don't find technology otherwise to be particularly helpful during, during the discussion. Uh, so within the classroom, we pretty much minimize technology. I'm trying to avoid getting everybody to pull out their cell phones or laptops because um, I think what we want is conversations, discussion, thinking. Um, the clickers are are actually so minimalist uh, that 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 is um, that, that's fruitful um, by and large. Outside of the class, we do make some use of technology. We give students the opportunity to communicate with each other um, through various types of websites um, so that they can have conversations outside of class. Tell us about the Carnegie Professor of the Year Award. Uh, so uh, Carnegie and Case um, uh, have this award for the U.S. Professor of the Year. They announce um, state winners, and then there are four national-level winners, one for a community college, one for bachelor's granting, one for master's granting, and one for doctoral granting, and that's the one that I got this year. Yeah. In, in just a few moments, can you give a shout-out to my physics class uh, in Longmont uh, and, uh, and tell them to hang in there? Well, f- by all means, <laughs> you, you, you're... What, what are you teaching? Phys- uh, algebra-based physics. Algebra-based physics. It's good stuff. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. You're listening to How on Earth, KGNU Science Show. I'm Jim Pullen. There's a lot going on right now in Colorado with fracking, and uh, three, probably four, front-range towns, depending on next uh, week's recount in Broomfield, have voted to slow or stop the heavy industrial process in their communities. The state's revisiting its air quality regs, and here to talk with us about measuring air quality near oil and gas wells is Dr. Chelsea Stevens with the uh, Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research at CU Boulder. Welcome to How on Earth, Chelsea. Thank you. So, Chelsea, um, uh, in honor of the uh, in honor of our our governor uh, of Governor Hickenlooper, uh, have you brought the flask of air and the inhaler so that I can sample some of this air? I have not. I wish you had told me ahead of time. I would have. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll have to forego that pleasure till next time. So, Chelsea, how bad? Uh, you know, how bad is it? How bad is the air and gas, uh, the the air pollution near these um, wells? It that's it's a subjective answer because you know here it's worse than it should be for rural Colorado for an area like this where. I mean, we have Denver to the south of us, but we're pretty far north of Denver. A lot of people live up here to get out of the urban area, what we consider an area that would have a lot of smog and pollution. Um, so we're 
we have VOC levels that are well above what we would expect for background levels. Um, with that said, we're not as bad as something like Los Angeles or Mexico City, of course. But, you know, it's it's still a concern. It's still a health concern. It's still an air quality concern. Anybody who's up here, I'm sure, has seen the brown layer of smog that kind of sits over this area, especially when you look east. This is not an urban area. It's a rural area. And, you know, a lot of these people, like I said, were trying to escape that and come out here to Colorado and exercise and be out in the air and breathe the fresh air. And so it's a big problem for the people up here that have that kind of lifestyle. Well, when I talked to Weld County Commissioner Sean Conway, and we had him on uh, here a while back, he said that, well, we've been suffering from all that pollution coming, blowing north from Denver for a long time. So he kind of made it sound like maybe that was an excuse to... to uh, keep on going on with this uh, with oil and gas development here. Um, uh, what do you think about that argument? I think Denver has been there for a long time, and we've been in non-attainment since 2007. And so Denver was there quite a while before that. Um, of cor- course, oil and gas has been there before as well, but the expansion has been so rapid recently that just the VOC emissions are increasing. Um, The VOC composition is also different between Denver and Weld County, for example. In Denver, you have more urban emissions. You have more things like your your unsaturated alkenes. um, What's what's an unsaturated alkene? So it's it's a short-chain hydrocarbon that is not completely saturated with hydrogen, essentially. There's a double bond in it. So it's more reactive. Uh, Um, More reactive. Yeah. It's usually a product of combustion. So your vehicles, um, acetylene is is another one. And those do contribute to ozone. They're very reactive. Um, Up here in Weld County, we're looking at your, uh, by mass, the most of your hydrocarbons are your short chain alkanes, which are saturated, primary emissions, and by that, I mean your ethane, propane, butane. So you can tell the pentanes. difference, at least, between yes. what's coming from Denver, what's coming from these oil and gas wells. Can you tell us about your own work here on the Front Range? Uh, you've been collecting some air samples and analyzing them. Yeah, um, we have been working up in Erie and Longmont. We've been collecting what we call whole air samples. It's essentially a, a six-liter canister that we just pull air into. We scrub ozone out of it first so that we don't have chemical reactions inside of the canister. And then we take them back to our laboratory. We run them on our instruments and see what's in there and how much. Um, We've been doing that uh, since the beginning of this year, around March through July. I'm writing up a paper on that right now. Um, And like I said, you know, we're we're primarily seeing that the vast majority of the, the VOC composition there is your oil and gas uh, emissions. So. Well, put it put it in some sort of context for us. Uh, the, what you're finding? What surprised you about what you found? Um, what surprised me was that in with my study and with the NOAA study that was published earlier this year, is that um, the alkanes, by which I mean these propanes and butanes, they're not as reactive as your unsaturated hydrocarbons, like I was talking about your alkenes. But because they're so abundant they are contributing about half to the ozone production in that area. And it's just because of sheer abundance. It's not because they're much more reactive or anything like that. There's just so much of it. Health impacts, if you, if you, as you understand? The health impacts of those VOCs, um, there's not much directly from the VOCs, directly from the primary emissions. Um, you can breathe a little bit of propane in and out. It's not going to hurt you. Um, they, the 
big problem with the health impacts, though, is that it forms ozone. Ozone is a respiratory irritant. Um, we are at uh, the EPA regulations are at 75 parts per billion right now. We're above that in the summertime. Um, and also uh, aerosols. So you form aerosols, particulate matter. You breathe that in. That's also bad for your lungs. Well, now, how are you folks getting support to do this research? Um, primarily through grants. So we we uh, have money through NSF usually. Um, we did a study in Utah, also in the gas fields. That was through the Utah Department of Environmental Quality. Um, we have a current study going on in Boulder County, which was uh, funded by the Boulder County Commissioners. Um, so various things, if local institutions have an interest in looking at their air quality or health studies and they give us some money, we go out and take some samples. So. Right. The uh, Now, have you been doing some work for the anti-fracking community too? Yes. The, um, the work in Erie was the, uh, it was funded through Erie Rising. They got a grant through Patagonia. So they paid us to collect a series of uh, samples and then give us the results. Well, the results if it. somebody were to ta- challenge you, now you folks run a world-class installation there. You, mm-hmm. This uh, lab is known for collecting and, and measuring yes. very tiny uh, levels of, of pollutants all around the world. Mm-hmm. But if somebody were to say, well, you've been paid by, by this organization, you know, how would you respond to that? Well, I would say that you know they gave us money as a subcontractor to do a job just like any other subcontractor i know like the town of erie for example would hire industry subcontractors to do air samples and we do the same thing you know we we give the results this is what they are and you know we're not here to make judgment calls on you know this is what you should be doing with the results just this is he- here they are and we stand by them you know we do like you were saying we do run the the voc leg of the entire uh global background monitoring network which is uh the world meteorological organization global atmospheric watch program we are um we um you know cross calibrate our standards with them regularly so and that's also with NOAA, the uh, the VOC background monitoring network. So this goes through our lab all the time. We're constantly being challenged and constantly being calibrated. So we stand behind our work and we stand behind our integrity. Now, in your mind, what else needs to be done? Um, what, what additional work needs to be done? Are there enough resources, briefly? I would like to see a large long-term health study. Um, that hasn't been done anywhere. And a lot of people talk about it, like, what are the health impacts? And we're talking about chronic exposure here. And so it's a lot harder to look at when you're looking at cancer rates. Um, Sometimes working with animals is actually better because they get cancer faster. Uh, But I would like to see that happen. And I would like to see um, air quality studies that follow every part of the process from your drilling to your flowbacks to your completions. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Chelsea Stevens with Instar. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. 
Our executive producer is Beth Bartell. Our producer this week's show. Thanks, Joel, for engineering today's show. And many thanks to Beth Bartell and Brian Calvert for their headlines on Tim and Fire. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional space music from Jerry Fielding and Ron Jones. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes and extended interviews. You can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Jim Pullen.